0: Well, in our jogging our way through Joshua, we've come to chapter 5. So if you'll make your way to Joshua chapter 5, we will take a look at this short chapter of 15 verses. I've never had the responsibility or the privilege of serving in the military, not even in the National Guard, but... uh, I do know that before any anyone who enlists or is drafted into service is entrusted with military uh, combat duties, they are first taken through basic training. Certain foundational skills and concepts they want these soldiers to understand before they're entrusted uh, with military uh, responsibility. And I think something of that background is behind what we're going to encounter in Joshua chapter 5. There's some basic training going on for the entire Nation, They have yet to encounter their first enemy in battle. And before the Lord sends them against their first uh, enemy into their first conflict, there are some foundational truths he wants them to be reminded of, wants them to to understand. Let's look at verse 1 to get the setting. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites, these are those who lived in the mountain country, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, And all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea that is along the Mediterranean sea coast and the coastlands, the plains, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel." chapters 3 and 4 we saw this remarkable story of how the nation had crossed the Jordan at flood stage at the worst possible time to attempt a crossing and yet how God's hand had been mighty on their behalf and the residents of Jericho perhaps perched up on their wall had a vantage point from which they could see this and so they saw the nation two and a half million strong cross the Jordan and set up camp and the word quickly spread from Jericho throughout the whole land of Canaan and uh, the writer uses a couple of vivid terms to describe their condition. First, he says their hearts had melted. Very vivid picture. It makes me think of the ice sculptures in McCall, which were so elegant and stately in January and yet have melted to just a puddle of water on the street by uh, March. And that had happened to the hearts of the people. He also says there was no spirit left in them any longer. They were dispirited or dis heartened. The wind had been taken completely out of their sails. Reminds me of a thoroughly uh, whipped football team coming to the line of scrimmage in the fourth quarter. No spirit and no heart left in them. And this was the condition of the Canaanites at this uh, point. Now, you would expect that right at that point, the Lord would give the nation instructions to go up and obliterate people. I learned in my Brief and gloriously unspectacular athletic career that when you have the, when you have the opponent on the defensive, you press the advantage. Go for the jugular. Uh, If you have the momentum, you keep it. And when they got their backs against the wall, when their backs on the heel, that's the time to press forward and to push ahead. And yet right at that time, when you would expect them to press the advantage, the Lord says there's some business we need to take care of. First, before you're ready to go up and go into battle. And that's what these three little episodes in chapter 5 are all about. There are three things that happen in this chapter. First of all, there is the circumcision of the nation in verses 2 through 9. Secondly, there is the celebration of Passover in verses 10 through 12. And third, there is a confrontation with the captain of the host of the Lord in verses 13 through 15. And there's a lesson in each one of these episodes that the nation needed to understand before they were equipped to go to battle. And there are parallel lessons for us in each one of these episodes that that we need to understand before we are equipped for life, to handle the adversity and conflict, to handle the challenge of the enemy. So let's read through these together, and we'll make some comments on them as we go. Let me read the circumcision episode, first of all, in verses 2 through 9. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, that they remained in their places, in the camp, until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So the first thing that happens here is that the Lord instructs Joshua to make enough flint knives to circumcise the entire nation of Israel, all the males in Israel. Probably 600,000 of them take a lot of flint knives to do that. Sounds a little bit brutal to have circumcision done with uh, flint unless you understand that flint, which is silicon dioxide or silica when it flakes off the edges of those flakes are extremely sharp make very good precision surgical instruments in fact there are still some surgeons today eye surgeons who do cataract surgery for instance very delicate uh, surgery and will use flint or obsidian to do that because it's a sharper cutting edge than you can machine tool anything And so those were the instructions that were given to Joshua. Make a very fine, precise cut. Minimize the bleeding. And as a Jewish male, I would be very interested in all of those things. And so those are the instructions that the Lord gave to uh, Joshua. One of our staff guys this week when we were discussing this in staff meeting uh, said, uh, came up with this. What did Barney and Betty Rubble and the sons of Israel all have in common? They had an unforgettable encounter with the Flintstones. And... uh, (laughs) I'm not responsible for that. I'm just <laughs> relaying it to you. We know from uh, geological uh, explorations that uh, flint or obsidian was very common in the Jordan Rift Valley, so there would be abundant supplies of this to make these knives. Now, the episode that Josh was referring to in verse 6, was what took place at Kadesh Barnea some 38 years before this. The nation of Israel had spent about a year at Sinai, made their way across the desert, and less than two years after they left Egypt, they had come to the southern borders of the land of Canaan at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Joshua sent 12 spies into the land, as you remember, to gather intelligence before the assault. Ten of the spies came back and said that the cities are heavily fortified, the people are giants. They use the metaphor. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. Let's not go up. We'll get slaughtered. Two of the spies, Joshua, the hero of this book, and Caleb, who shows up later, were the only two of the twelve who said they're right for the picking. Let's have the courage and the faith in God to go up and take the land. Well, the nation, all the men of war, all these brave soldiers, listened to the ten spies and in cowardice and lack of faith refused to go up in obedience to the Lord's command. And the Lord's response to their act of uh, cowardice and lack of faith and obedience was to take an oath to swear that none of that generation of soldiers would enter the land, not a one. And this is the explanation, by the way, for why the wandering took so long. Do you ever wonder why it lasted 40 years? Well, it took that long for the last of the soldiers who had been at Kadesh Barnea to die off. I thought this week about what it would be like to be the last surviving soldier, have an entire nation of two and a half million people monitoring your health every day. How you doing, pop? so oh, I'm feeling great nuts you know but it took thirty eight years for the last of these soldiers to die out, and then the nation was prepared to enter the land now there's no explanation given for why they these nation was not circumcised while they were in the wilderness but my guess is it's because they the nation as a whole was resting under the judgment of god for this national act of disobedience some 38 years before this and uh, as a consequence none of the sons in the nation were allowed to bear this sign or symbol of god's covenant with abraham it's a reminder of the uh, of how influential certain decisions that we make in life are we can make certain decisions that uh, out of disobedience or a lack of faith or courage that can affect us for the rest of our lives that happened to these men and not only can these decisions affect us not only do we have to live with the consequences of these decisions for the remainder of life but our families do as well the wives of these soldiers were consigned to wandering in the wilderness for all these years. And their children were consigned to this wilderness wandering as well. But at last, the last of this generation dies off and the nation then is recircumcised. The place where the circumcision took place is called Gibeath Haraloth in verse 3. That literally means the hill of the foreskins. Imagine 600,000 of those would make a fair-sized mound. But that became the name of this place. And they were circumcised on that day. Now, one question to ask, an important question, is why circumcision? Why was the nation circumcised? Well, we do know that they had to be circumcised in order to participate in the Passover, which they were to celebrate some four days later. But there's a deeper uh, point to circumcision as a symbol. This goes all the way back to Genesis 17. I'll take you there in just a moment. But circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God had made With Abraham, first announcement of that covenant had been in chapter 12 of Genesis. God restates it in Genesis 15, and to cement his covenant with Abraham, he uh, carries out that very vivid ceremony, which you remember, where he had the carcasses of animals cut in two with a passageway in between, put Abraham to sleep, and then passed, symbolized by a flaming torch, passed between the two halves of the carcasses. And it was the Lord's way of symbolizing to Abraham that I will be responsible to fulfill this covenant. It uh, will be my responsibility, my power, to fulfill both halves of the covenant arrangement that I've made with you. Well, Abraham woke up from that episode and evidently forgot what the Lord had tried to teach him. The Lord had promised him a posterity, promised him a descendant had given him that promise in Genesis 15 when Abraham was 75 years old. Abraham gets to 86 and no child, no descendant. He's not getting any younger. Sarah's not getting any younger. So evidently, Abraham decides that he's going to help God out in getting him to where God wants him to be. And so he arranges to father a child by Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaid. Now, this was at Sarah's suggestion. And this was culturally appropriate at that time. But nevertheless, it represented Abraham's efforts using his own ingenuity, his own resourcefulness, his own creativity to help fulfill the promises that God had made to him. That happened in Genesis 16. In Genesis 17, the Lord comes back to Abraham and restates the Abrahamic covenant and gives him the circumcision as a sign of that covenant arrangement. And I think what he was saying to Abraham is, look, you've done, you've taken matters into your own hands. You've relied on your own resourcefulness here. And what you've, all you've managed to do is to start a royal cat fight in your own house between Sarah and Hagar. And not only this, you've started the Arab-Israeli conflict, which I'm going to have to put up with for 6,000 years. So why don't you just back off a couple of steps and let me take care of this in my way? I have promised Abraham that I will raise up a seed for you and trust me to do it and I believe that's why God shows circumcision as a symbol of this covenant because the male sex organ was chosen because this was the instrument of procreation it was a symbol of Abraham's virility and manhood and literally in this case he was placing his entire future in the hands of the Lord and trusting God to raise up a seed in the Lord's way So when Abraham accepted circumcision as a sign, it was his way of saying to the Lord, I am going to stop depending and counting upon my own resources and my own strength and creativity and intelligence to handle this problem. And I am going to trust wholly in your grace and your power and your promises. Now, Abraham had to wait another 14 years before Isaac was born. So God tested his willingness to trust him in patient faith. But that's why the nation was being circumcised. As the nation was circumcised on this day, it was their way of saying to God, we want to operate on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. We want not to depend on our own power and might and strength to handle the task before us, But we want, as Abraham did, to trust wholly in your power and resource. Now, that's the basic difference between the Old Covenant, which is identified with Moses in the Scripture, and the New Covenant, which is identified with Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant, remember, as we discussed several weeks ago, has two characteristic words in it. Thou shalt. Over and over again, like a hammer beating on a gong, those are the words that are found in the Ten Commandments, the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. Thou shalt, pressure to produce, place squarely on the Israelites themselves. But go back to Genesis 17 with me just for a moment. And I want to read with you the phrasing that we find in the Abrahamic Covenant. <coughs> And I want to see if you can identify a little two-word phrase which is quite in contrast to the two-word phrase that's found in the Mosaic Covenant. Start in uh, verse 2. The Lord says to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Uh, verse uh, 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. You're starting to catch the drift here? Verse 6, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants. And at the end of verse 8, I will be their God. And that's the basic difference between these two arrangements for living. And these are the only two bases on which we as people can live life. Either we can allow God to say to us, Thou shalt, accept the pressure to produce and perform on our shoulders, rely upon what we have to bring to life, or we can let God say to us, I will, I will be everything that you need to handle life. Now, circumcision was a symbol, I think, because it involved the cutting off of something. And the symbolism for us, as it's carried into the New Testament, is that for us, the parallel to circumcision is a cutting off of the old self, a cutting off of the old lifestyle of depending upon our own resources to handle life. All of us long to be a certain kind of person. As men, we long to be strong and courageous and to be leaders in our our homes. As women, we, we long to be gracious and loving and strong and able to and able to roll with the punches and take the disappointments and and struggles of life and handle them without being crushed by them well there's only two ways to approach that either we depend on what we have to bring to that task or we count upon the resource of the lord and uh, what the new testament teaches us is that the only way that that can happen the only way we can become the people we long to be is to allow the old self the old lifestyle of self-reliance to be cut off by the lord now this can be a painful process. It certainly was for these Israelite males. You'll notice down in verse 8, uh, when it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation, that these 600,000 men remained in their places, which being translated says they didn't move for three days, with which I can identify, until it says they were healed, at the end of the verse. The word healed there literally means to come to life. And so this is a vivid picture of death to the old life coming to life three days later, imitating the pattern of Christ. And that's the lesson that the nation needed to learn out of this, the parallel lesson that we need to learn. Our basic stance in approaching life is to come to the end of relying upon ourselves and begin to depend wholly upon the resource and power of God. This can be a difficult thing to do. We go into marriage, for instance, with an instinctive dependence and reliance upon our mates to supply our basic needs. And then when they do not meet our needs in the way that we desire, there's the instinctive uh, impulse to do what we can to maneuver them into behaving the way that we want them to so that our needs can be satisfied. Now, the only way in which we can be set free from that is to come to the end of depending on what we can do to make our mates perform and respond and say, Lord, I'm I'm totally dependent upon you to meet my needs, not upon my husband or not upon my wife. I want to give up trying to see my needs satisfied through my partner and now depend wholly upon you to be the one that satisfies the deepest needs of my heart that process can be difficult and painful as it was for the israelites but it's the only path to true life when we were on the uh, men's retreat this summer one of the men who was along shared with us his story and how the lord had gotten his attention and brought him to the end of himself and the end of his dependence upon himself he was a a national class athlete a decathlete uh, for that matter those men are widely regarded as the greatest athletes in the world and he was one of the best of the best and had a realistic shot at making the united states olympic team in 1980 as a decathlete and as he approached the pac-8 meet which was the key stepping stone on the way to the olympic trials he approached that in the best shape of his life he trained hard he'd worked for this moment and honed his body to the point where he was he was at the peak of his physical condition and all during this time, a friend of his has been trying to share uh, the truth about Jesus with him and to encourage him to entrust his life to the Lord. But at this point, he saw no need to do that. Uh, depending upon himself, it worked out very well, thank you very much. Uh, and he related to us how on the first day of competition in the Pack 8 meet, as the events progressed, by the time he got to the third event, he found himself dizzy and completely disoriented and completely drained of physical strength and had to drop completely drop out of the competition and saw just in that one afternoon all of his hopes and uh, dreams for glory just, just washed away. And still to this day, he doesn't know what happened to him. The medical people who examined him have no idea what happened to him. But he's convinced that this was the Lord's way of getting his attention. He was saying to him, look, I have to cut off the old self in order for you to true, to truly live. It may be painful, it's going to cost you something, but this is the pathway to life. And that's what the nation had to learn here. C.S. Lewis expressed the same concept in Mere Christianity quite well. I thought I'd read this to you. He's talking about the path to true life coming through the death to the old man. He said, there must be a real giving up of the self You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. The principle runs all through life from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, ruin, rage, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. One of the stories I read to my children is called The Littlest Christmas Tree. And it's a story about a little tiny Christmas tree who wanted to see everything everywhere. But he was so tiny, he was completely overshadowed by all the other trees in the forest. But this was his lifelong ambition, to be able to see everything everywhere. And he tried his hardest to grow and become a tall tree. But one day, he was cut down by a woodsman and uh, taken to town and sold as a Christmas tree. The Littlest Christmas Tree... In the market. And he was purchased by a sailor who took this Christmas tree to his ship and hoisted it on the top of the tallest mast on the ship. And at last, the littlest Christmas tree was able to see everything everywhere, but had to be cut down first. And that's the lesson that the Lord is trying to get across to the nation here. You first of all have to come to the end of yourself in order to truly experience real, genuine life. Now we see the Passover episode next. Uh, I might mention just before we move on to that next episode is that you can see how this instance represented a real step of faith on Joshua's part. Now Joshua probably did not know the panic that had run through the entire country. He couldn't know what we know in verse 1. He didn't have spies out gathering this intelligence. He realized also that his way of retreat had been cut off. The Jordan River was back to flood stage. There was no way back. And if you're a military man, you would expect a counterattack right at this point. If you were ever going to expect your enemy to strike, it would be right at this point. As soon as you cross the river with no path of retreat. And yet what the Lord says to Joshua, right at this critical juncture in this campaign, what I want you to do is I want you to completely disable your entire military force for three days. So Joshua had to kind of swallow real hard and say, okay, Lord, I'll trust you to protect us while we remain in our places. And this is what removed the reproach of Egypt. I expect the reproach of Egypt that's referred to in verse 9 was the attitude of the Egyptians as they saw this nation ushered out of Egypt in power and might and yet then spend the next 40 years not enjoying the promised land, but wandering about aimlessly in the desert. How the Egyptians must have laughed at the nation when they saw that. And at last, because they discovered this principle of depending wholly upon the power of God, this reproach of Egypt was, was rolled away in this one day. And the name of that place became known as Gilgal, which is related to the Hebrew word for, for rolling and next we have the Passover episode in verses 10 through 12, second lesson that he wanted them to learn. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the fourteenth day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So you notice, first of all, they celebrate Passover on the 14th of the month, and then on the 15th of the month, the next day, they, for the first time in their history as a nation, eat, partake of some of the fruit of the promised land. And then on the third day, the 16th day, the supply of manna was cut off. And all that they partook of now was the rich provision of the land. Expect that they got this uh, grain and, uh, from the unguarded granaries and fields of the residents of Jericho, who were now all holed up in panic within the walls of the city, leaving their fields and their uh, silos unattended so the Israelites could help themselves to the fruit of the land. Now, of course, the nation, as I mentioned before, first of all, had to be circumcised before they could uh, celebrate the Passover. And the Passover celebration, you remember, goes back 40 days to the very night. This is only the second time the nation had celebrated the Passover. The first time had been 40 years ago to the very day. And the Passover for the Israelites symbolized uh, what our 4th of July symbolizes. It was their declaration of independence as a nation. It was the time when they were formed into a nation. And so they're celebrating that again for the second time. But there's a powerful lesson that God wanted to reinforce to the Israelites in having them celebrate the Passover. As you remember, that night 40 years prior, the whole land, the Egyptians, as well as the Israelites, were under the judgment of God. And God's judgment was that the firstborn son in every household in the land would be taken that night by the angel of death. That included the sons in Israeli households as well as Egyptian households. But God provided a way for them to be spared that judgment. He said, if you will take a one-year-old lamb which is uh, spotless blameless no blemish on it and you will slit its throat allow the life to drain out of that helpless innocent uh, victim and take the blood from that lamb and apply it to the doorposts of your home the angel of death will pass over your home and that's how the celebration became known as the passover Now, that remedy was available to the entire land. The Egyptians could have participated in that remedy as well. But the Israelites did so. They uh, executed this innocent lamb. Remember, a one-year-old lamb would be very cuddly and soft, a household pet, a a marvelous picture of, uh, of an innocent, guiltless victim whose life is being poured out so that the lives of others might be spared. And of death saw the blood on the doorposts and passed over that home. Now, what makes this, this episode even more compelling, in my judgment, is that many of the heads of households who are celebrating the Passover on this night with their families were firstborn sons, whose own lives had been spared 40 years ago by the mercy and grace of God, On the basis of the sacrifice of an innocent victim now imagine the way in which they could compellingly communicate to their family how merciful and gracious God had been they could explain to their family that the only reason that I am with you tonight to celebrate this as a firstborn son of my father is that God spared my life because an innocent victim was sacrificed in my place And God wanted to remind the nation of that, that no matter how far short they fell of his standards, no matter how much of his judgment they deserved, that a sacrifice had been provided for them. And if they would appropriate the benefits of the sacrifice to themselves, they could have an answer for the guilt that otherwise would plague them. And this is the second thing he wanted them to understand. He's he's communicating to the nation and to us that we're not truly prepared to handle life unless we have some solution to the problem of guilt we need a solution to the problem of of adequacy and that's what was communicated to them in the in the rite of circumcision but we also need an answer to the to the troubling problem of guilt and that was communicated to them in the Passover Luis Palau had a uh, arresting Encounter with a woman who was the secretary of the Communist Party in Ecuador when he was down there in one of his crusades. She had arranged uh, an appointment with him. She was 38. She was tough, hard-bitten. And she came into his office in her battle fatigues and proceeded to use every expletive in the book to denounce him, to ridicule him, to attack him. And he allowed this to, to run its course until her venom was spent. And then he he asked her if there was any way in which he could help her. Is there anything I can do for you? And this caught her so off guard that she uh, began to weep. And he asked her why. And uh, she said, I'm 38 years old, and no one in my whole life has ever asked me how they could help me before. And that opened uh, the floodgates, and she began to describe her life to... Uh, louis palau and spent three hours describing the 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 horrible life that she had lived and the circumstances that had had shaped her and he could see that she was consumed with guilt from her past and uh, palau tells the story this way finally she paused a new thought had occurred to her palau suppose there is a god and i'm not saying there is do you think he would receive a woman like me look maria i replied don't worry about what i think look at what god says i opened my bible and turned it so she could see but i don't believe in the but he interrupted her but we're supposing there's a god right i interjected let's suppose the bible is his word listen to what god says their sins and lawless acts i will remember no more she waited as if there had to be more but listen I've been an adulteress, married three times, and in bed with a lot of different men. I repeated, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. But I haven't told you half my story. I stabbed a comrade who later committed suicide. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. I've led student riots where people were killed. Their sins, And lawless acts I will remember no more. I egged my friends on and then hid while they were out dying for the cause. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Seventeen times I responded to Maria's objections and confessions. Finally I said, Would you like Jesus Christ to forgive you for all that you've told me and for all the rest I don't even know? For a long time she was silent. Then she said softly, If he could forgive me and change me, it would be the greatest miracle in the world. Within ten minutes, I witnessed that miracle as she confessed her sins, asked for God's forgiveness, and received the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. The door of her personal closet prison flew open, and Maria walked out a free woman. She was forgiven and freed from the skeletons she had been hiding for a lifetime, skeletons of anger anger immorality greed violence and hatred and that's what the nation would be reminded of in the passover no matter how grievous their past and their sins and their acts of disobedience and their faithfulness and their treachery god had provided an innocent victim so that they might be spared the judgment of god now the last episode is found in verses 13 through 15 Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the lord's host said to Joshua, "Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy." And Joshua did so. I expect that uh, Joshua was out by Jericho at this point trying to figure out how in the world he was going to take this invulnerable fortress when his attention was captured by this military figure with a with a sword drawn. And Joshua didn't shrink from this encounter, but went forward with courage and boldness, evidently learned the lesson God wanted him to learn in in chapter 1, and approached this man and asked him the very straightforward question, are you for us or are you against us? And the guy says, no. And what's the point of that? Well, what the commander of the army of the Lord was saying to Joshua is that I have not come to take sides, I've come to take over. And that's always the real pressing question in life. It's not in some domestic quarrel for instance, the question is never is the lord on my side or on my wife's side. The question is am i on his side? And that's the third thing that the lord wanted to communicate. Not only was he willing to give them the strength to fulfill all the promises he'd made to them and give them forgiveness for all of their sins, but he insisted on being treated and regarded as Lord. And that's the third thing that he wants us to understand. For us to be equipped for battle, we need to be prepared to acknowledge him, not just as Savior in life, not just as the one who will come in and clean up all the messes that I've made out of my life, but also the one who is my Lord and is my Master. Now, I expect that what Joshua was looking for when he asks the question in verse 14... What has my Lord to say to his servant is I I think what he was looking for was a battle plan. He expected the commander to uh, pull out a map of Jericho and tell him which walls to tunnel under and which walls to attack with the battering ram. He'd expect them to synchronize uh, sundials for the attack on the nation the next day. But instead, what this figure says to him is remove the sandals from your feet for you are standing on holy ground. Now, who is this figure? Well, my guess is this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that he accepts worship from Joshua, which no angel would do. Remember, in the Book of Revelation, John twice tried to offer worship to an angel because of the radiant creature that confronted him, and each time the angel told him to get to his feet. Worship doesn't belong to me, he says. Belongs only to God and yet here's a figure who accepts worship from joshua so he must be more than an angel and then in the last verse in the chapter he tells joshua that he's standing on holy ground Well, what made that a holy place well it was the presence of god that's what makes any place or any activity holy it's not the nature of the place but it's the presence of god and so joshua here was in the presence of god himself And the great lesson, I believe, that comes for us out of this little encounter is to realize that we, in any circumstance we're in, of conflict or pressure, we need to ask ourselves or ask the Lord the same question that Joshua asked his Lord. What has my Lord to say to his servant? In other words, the question each of us need to be asking is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, in a marriage, for instance, I generally have a pretty good idea of what my Lord has to say to my wife, and I wish he would get around to saying this to her. But that's never the question that the believer asks. The question is always, what has has my Lord to say to his servant? What do you have to say to me? What do you want me to do in this circumstance? How do you want me to behave? And, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you tell me, as difficult as that is, to stick with a, with a struggling marriage, to give myself up to, to a wife who is uh, unresponsive and inattentive, or to respond lovingly to a husband who is, uh, whose initiative is tyrannical and, uh, and selfish and to continue to love, or to forgive someone who's wounded me and hurt me and to forgive them from the heart because my Lord asks me to do that. Now, that may be tough to do, but if I'm asking the question, what has my Lord to say to His servant, then I will be willing to work that through and come to a place of forgiveness. And I believe that's the lesson. Those three lessons are what the Lord wanted to get across to the nation. is uh, The path to victory in life is to come to the end of yourself, first of all. Depend wholly on the power of God. Accept the forgiveness of God for all of our mistakes, present and past and to serve him and worship him as Lord. Now, it's instructive that uh, what, the, what the commander says to Joshua is, Worship me. In other words, Joshua was looking for a battle plan. He was looking for a strategy. Now, the Lord said to Joshua, We're going to get to that. I will get to your problem, and I will give you some help in practically dealing with that. And we'll talk about the steps you're to take to deal with this. But right now, what I want you to do is to worship me to remove the sandals from your feet and worship me. We have a few minutes left in our hour this morning, and that's what we'd like to do to uh, in a spiritual sense, metaphorical sense. Uh, remove the sandals from our feet and bow down and worship to our Lord in preparation for the coming week. Let me pray, and then Sherry will start our time of worship. Father, we would like to... Um, express our gratitude to you this morning that your provision for us is so complete that you have given us your strength uh, to fulfill your promises to us and you've given us forgiveness for our mistakes and our failures and our disobedience and that you've also reminded us that you are to be Lord. Help us to remember those things in this coming week and make these the foundational principles by which we approach all of life depend wholly on you and trust in your forgiveness and serve you and worship you, not just as Savior, as Lord. Give us the opportunity in this week to act on those truths, and we pray now as we spend just a few minutes worshiping you that you will accept this as a sacrifice of praise from our lips. Amen.